Blog Talk Radio. I guess we should do another edition of Parenting Your Challenging Child. After all, we do this every Monday morning at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, and it's Monday morning at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, so I guess this is what we ought to be doing right now. Uh, Whether you're listening in live or listening to the recorded version of the program, welcome to today's program. Most folks listen to the recorded version, and that's lots of folks, which is very gratifying because it says that lots of people are finding this program to be useful and helpful, and that, of course, is the reason we do it here at Lives in the Balance. Uh, here's a plug. The conference, the second, this third annual International Summit on non-adversarial, non-punitive interventions for at-risk kids, sponsored every year by Lives in the Balance, is November 8th this year, once again here in Portland, Maine. And it won't just be my model of collaborative and proactive solutions that will be featured. We will have a variety of other models that fit under the non-adversarial, non-punitive collaborative, proactive, skill-enhancing, relationship-building tent, including, and I won't remember them all, restorative justice, nonviolent communication, conscious discipline, positive parenting. Uh, there's others. I prompt uh, social thinking. And I know there's a few others that I don't remember at the moment. Um, That's November 8th here in Portland, Maine. If you can make it, also the keynote speaker is Robin Peters Bennett from the U.S. Alliance to End the Hitting of Children. And she is quite the, um, well, she's got a lot of information about the damage done, not just by severe abuse, but also just by hitting a kid. Uh, that's the non-punitive part of the conference. You don't hit kids. There's other there's other ways. If there's another way to accomplish the mission, why would you hit? Why would you be punitive if there's another way that's positive and non-adversarial and non-punitive to get the job done? going to be quite a day. It's the day on which we galvanize people to go back to their communities and advocate for what we're trying to accomplish, a better understanding of how behaviorally challenging kids come to be challenging and what we all can be doing about it to try to help them better than in many places we're helping them now. All right, the call-in number, once again, I always forget to mention it, but here it is. I'm not forgetting. 347-994-2981. As always, if you want to be reminded that the program is on, you can sign up for our Twitter feed. Yeah, I went kicking and screaming into Twitter because, well, I won't 
say anything. No editorial comments about most of the stuff that's on Twitter, but I promise not to fill you in on all of the trivial details of um, either my life or what's going on at Lives in the Balance, just the important stuff, including when the radio programs are beginning. So you could have been tweeted this morning, and um, wouldn't that have been cool? 347-994-2981. We still have lots of email to get through that accumulated over the summer. So in the absence of any callers, that is where I am going to start. This is one that was posted on the community page of the Lives in the Balance Facebook page. Um, Yes, we went kicking and screaming into Facebook as well, but there it is. Um, Apparently, the thing you're supposed to do on our Facebook page is like us. Well, there you have it. If you like us, then like us. And if that doesn't make any sense to you, then join the club. Here's the email. I am the parent of a challenging child who is five going on six. She attends a very supportive Montessori school, but the folks there have recommended that she see an occupational therapist to help with her challenges at home. I am not too familiar with occupational therapy, but based on some Internet research, I am not certain they would be able to help much in our case. Certainly our daughter does have some tactile issues, mostly related to wearing socks, which we rarely force her to do, but also occasionally with other items of clothing. But the bulk of our trouble comes from daily meltdowns which can seemingly be triggered from any minor frustration. We have read The Explosive Child and are doing our best to implement Plan B, but progress is sometimes hard to detect. I feel school resuming, this was written a month ago, so school has already resumed, should be a big help as the summer caused our daughter to get a little stir-crazy. So my basic question is, has anyone tried occupational therapy for a challenging child and was it beneficial? Uh, We don't have insurance that will cover the therapy and so would rather not try it if it is unlikely to be effective. On the other hand, if it is something she could benefit from, we will find a way to make it happen. Thanks for any insights you might have. Um, Here's my insights, as long as you asked. Um, I would expect occupational therapy to be effective for the things that occupational therapy is effective for. Uh, motoric issues, sensory hypersensitivities, uh, and you named one, uh, wearing socks, and also occasionally other items of clothing. So there's, I mean, this is the interesting thing. Uh, Occupational therapy, I would not expect it to address um, issues, uh, unsolved problems, and as you're calling them, meltdowns, that are related to other unsolved problems that don't have anything to do with motor issues and sensory issues. So I'm hoping the folks at your child's school were noticing the sensory issues, and that's why the occupational therapy approach came to mind. Um, But it really depends a lot on what the other unsolved problems are that are causing what you're describing as the daily meltdowns that are seemingly triggered from any minor frustration. So it's possible that an occupational therapist, and truth is no downside in contacting a 
reputable occupational therapist and describing to that individual the difficulties that you're having and seeing what they would do to try to be helpful and seeing if that would make sense. And um, I think that the occupational therapists that I know, who I think very highly of, are very good at saying, well, here's the things that occupational therapy would help with and here's the things that occupational therapy would not help with. You know, same for antibiotics. There's things that antibiotics help with and there's things that antibiotics do not help with. Same for speech and language therapy. There are things that a speech and language therapist could help with and things that a speech and language therapist would probably say, you know what, that's not something that would fall into my realm. What we really need, though, is to know, and you're welcome to call into the program, by the way, we really need you to use the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems to identify your daughter's lagging skills so we know who we got here and so that we have the right lenses on and unsolved problems because we're not going to be able to work on daily meltdowns that are triggered from any minor frustration. That's too broad. We need to figure out what those minor frustrations are. Those are your unsolved problems. And then we'll find out if any of them would be well addressed by what occupational therapists do. I have a feeling that you're going to find that some of them would be addressed well, would make sense that OT would address them, and some of them it might not make any sense whatsoever. But without that list of unsolved problems, we won't know what we're working on, and we won't know who can help. Now, one last thing. Once you have your list, you'll want to prioritize so you're not working on everything at once. And what you're likely to find when you start doing the empathy step of plan B is that um, you're going to get lots of information from your child about what's going on with the particular unsolved problems that you chose to prioritize. And you are highly likely to have the experience that what you thought was going on is not what was going on. And so um, this is the amazing thing. We don't want to deprive ourselves or your daughter of all the advantages of finding out what's really going on before we plunge forward with an intervention. Good to identify all of the unsolved problems that are precipitating her challenging episodes. That's what sets the stage for you to then gather information on those episodes and find out what's really going on and find out what would be helpful. But we don't know what would be helpful until we've finished those first two steps of plan B. Making the list of unsolved problems indispensable. Can't imagine doing this without it. And so I suspect that the reason that you are saying that progress has been hard to detect, it could be, I don't know your situation well enough just from what you posted on Facebook, but um, uh, it could be that you're working on unsolved problems that are too vague or, worse yet, on behaviors. As I think I said in last week's program, if you're working on hitting, you're working on 
simultaneously working on all of the unsolved problems that give rise to hitting. And if that's why a lot of kids, when you talk to them about their behavior, either won't participate in the discussion or can't because we've approached them in a way that is so global they don't really understand what information we're looking for and can't, therefore, provide us with that information. You don't want to be working on behaviors. You want to be working on specific unsolved problems. And then if you've got the three steps of plan B mastered, I'm hoping that the progress that you're hoping for will be detectable. Feel free to call in anytime. That call-in number again is 347-994-2981. Here's another one. This from late August. I apologize that uh, it took us so long to get to it. Hi, Dr. Green. I just finished your book, The Explosive Child, and it has saved my sanity. Good. My six-year-old son is a classic explosive child. Now that I have read your book, I can look back and see that he has been this way since infancy. That's probably a long time. Well, you said he was six. That's a long time. I have shared this book with my husband and our families, and we are now laughing because many of the issues that my husband struggles with are explained by your book. It's such a relief. I'm glad. My husband has asked me to start using Plan B with him, and I am. Isn't that nice? My question involves my son. At the age of four, I noticed that the explosions were getting worse, and we have struggled for the past two years to deal with him. The past few weeks, I've been applying Plan B, and it has been helping tremendously. He is more receptive to my help and has been able to avert an explosion himself several times. That is fantastic. That's, that you've, that's a lot of progress in two weeks. Last night, however, he exhibited behavior that frankly scares me. He's done this before, but not since I've been using Plan B. He and my husband had an explosion during the day, and my husband didn't handle it well. I attempted Plan B with my son last night to come up with a solution to solve the issue that had arisen. Editorial comment, good for you. Good for you that you took something that occurred in the heat of the moment and transformed it into an effort at proactive problem solving. That's outstanding. He very plainly told me that he didn't want to talk about it, that he didn't care, rolled his eyes and told me to shut my mouth and stop talking. That's not good. Then he laughed and laughed in a way that scared me. He said he didn't love me and didn't care if I loved him or not. Now, a lot of this may be the only way he knows how to communicate with me, and I understand that. My concern is his seeming emotional detachment from the problem or issue. He simply is not interested in solving that problem, in, in problem solving, or going over anything again. I attempted Plan B with him today and got pretty much the same response, rolling eyes and said, stop talking about it. I don't want to talk about it. I don't care. My husband and I both feel the emotional detachment and loss from him. We are afraid for him. It looks like a lack of empathy from him, like he is closing in on himself and is emotionally drifting further away from us. We simply don't know how to reach him and get him to open up or how to get him to care if that is even a reasonable expectation. Our son has always been happy, sweet, loving, and extremely intelligent. Since he started kindergarten last year, I've noticed these qualities slipping away to agree that I'm worried we will never get back. In other words, that we won't see our son anymore, that he will perpetually be in a state of upset, resentment, and mistrust. 
is this a normal reaction from an explosive child to an event, or is there something more going on that we need to have addressed by a professional? I appreciate you taking the time to read this and offer any advice or direction possible. My husband and I both feel stuck on this one and want to proceed with our son's best interests at heart. First of all, thank you for writing. I fully appreciate your concerns. And here's the interesting thing. I've not met your son. I always give this disclaimer. Haven't done, therefore, a comprehensive evaluation on your son, so I can only speak to what I've seen in situations that are similar, but having not met him or comprehensively evaluated him, I don't pretend that what I'm about to say will be comprehensive or adequate, but I'll give it my best shot. All right. The first thing that I'm noticing is that you said that you've been applying Plan B and it has been helping tremendously, but that confused me a little bit when I read the rest of the email because if you've been applying Plan B and it has been helping him tremendously, then one assumption I could make, even though maybe I shouldn't, is that there are some unsolved problems that he is willing to talk about and other unsolved problems that he is less willing or able to talk about. Not the most crucial point, but your earlier statement that Plan B has been helping tremendously suggested to me that there are some things he will talk about, which means we don't have a global refusal to talk. Some kids on some topics, and here's why this part doesn't matter that much, I would be answering the same, whether there are some plan Bs he's participating, uh, I might not answer it the same. Let's say that there are some plan Bs that he is participating in, some unsolved problems that he is willing to talk about. That would be a hint, at least, that the unsolved problem he's refusing to talk about, there's something about that unsolved problem. And I think I would ask about that. Here's what that would sound like in the empathy step. Um, buddy, I don't, you don't have to talk about this thing, but I've noticed, that's the beginning of the empathy step, the introduction, I've noticed that whenever I raise the topic of ba-ba-ba-ba-ba, you seem to not want to talk about it. What's up? And the strategy that's being used here is, first of all, he has the right not to talk about it. Uh, and we can't make him talk about anything. But a lot of kids who uh, are having difficulty talking about something don't necessarily have difficulty talking about why they don't want to talk about it. And that's what I would do. See if he'll talk about why he doesn't want to talk about it. That's not trickery. That's just increasing his comfort level and you getting more information. And sometimes, not, not necessarily about the unsolved problem itself, but at least about why he doesn't want to talk about it. Sometimes, um, sometimes after a child has talked about why he doesn't want to talk about it, the comfort level has increased to the point that he's 
able to talk about what he didn't want to talk about. Um, another reason to use that strategy um, is that sometimes when they're talking about why they don't want to talk about it, some information still slips through about what it is that they didn't want to talk about. Now, if he's refusing to talk about anything, sometimes we have to talk about talking. And that's why I'm a little confused. I don't know if your earlier statement that Plan B had been extremely helpful on some things. But let's say he's refusing to talk about anything. Then instead of introducing, instead of the introduction of the empathy step focusing on a specific unsolved problem, instead we'd focus on just talking. I've noticed that when there's an unsolved problem I'd like to talk with you about, that seems to be hard for you. What's up? All right. Um, I would need to hear much more about the rolling his eyes, telling you to shut your mouth and stop talking, telling you he didn't want to talk about it, that he didn't care. I would need to hear much more about the laugh and how the laugh scared you. I would need to hear much more about the conditions in which he said he didn't love you and didn't care if you loved him or not. Now, there are kids who, whether it's the topic or just talking in general, um, say stuff like that. I'm going to assume, just because I don't know any better, that those are things he says when it's either a topic he's having difficulty talking about. And once again, I could be completely wrong here. This is why I would want to know the situation much better than I do before I could come to any definitive conclusions about what those behaviors mean. There's the disclaimer. But I'm going to assume that those are things that are his way of saying, I don't want to talk about it. And, of course, what else would be left, all the other things he could be communicating when he's saying those things. But those are things I don't know anything about, so I can't comment on other things he might be communicating when he's saying Then These are not... These are hard things for a parent to hear, especially the he doesn't love you and doesn't care if you love him or not part. Um, that's not even my best guess, but it's just one possibility for what he might be communicating when he says those things. I'm having difficulty talking about that topic. I'm having difficulty talking in general. Now, an interesting point. If those things are only being said, and this is another part of your question that um, jumps out at me, if those things are only being said under certain conditions, especially conditions in which you are asking him to talk about something he doesn't want to talk about, I would still be concerned, but I would be less concerned because that makes it a little bit clearer that he might, once again, I don't know, be simply communicating something else, but in a way that, at the very least, we would, we would qualify as being rather harsh. 
But here's the thing. Uh, let me see where you wrote this. He's always been a, always been a happy, sweet, loving, and extremely intelligent kid. But you've noticed, and presumably, happy, sweet, loving, and intelligent means that he would talk with you about problems, especially if you were trying to do it collaboratively. What you're noticing is that things started heading south when he started kindergarten. That's something I would want to know much more about. Once again, you're always welcome to call into the program. We keep things anonymous on the program except for the area code you're calling from. I wonder what that's about and if there's anything to that. So once again, I can only take you so far here and only talk about what I've seen as it relates to the application of the model to what you're describing. But what is probably quite clear is that there would be much more that I'd want to know and that you'd want to know to really understand what's going on as well as possible. I think that's probably the best I can do. I wish I could be more helpful, but there are limits to what can be done on a radio program. Still, we try. On to another email. Dr. Rena read your book, The Explosive Child, fits my six-year-old perfectly and her dad, too. I am struggling with many issues, but working with Plan B. My daughter refuses to potty train during the day. I mean every trip. She also completely breaks down while trying to get ready for school and having to deal with deadlines or schedules. Well, here's the edit, first editorial comment. Um, good for you for identifying rather specific unsolved problems. Good. That's a step in the right direction. Back to the email. Do you have any specific books, articles, etc., that would address either item? With school starting, by the way, this was sent late August. We are, I apologize, we are back to the morning drama. Potty training is beyond me. The doctor, the psychologist, and the psychiatrist. So if you can direct me anywhere for toilet training, a child who is in complete denial of her bathroom responsibilities, I would much appreciate it. Thank you for any help or direction you can give. All right. So this too, can be more complicated than it at first seems. Um, there's a detail that you have left out. Not, not your fault, just a detail that it, one, uh, many details that I'm lacking here. So once again, same qualifier as with the previous uh, question. But um, is your daughter soiling or just refusing to use the toilet. Um, I'm going to assume, well, I'm not going to assume anything. If she is soiling, uh, you are seeing feces. I'm, I'm assuming you're talking about feces. You might not even be talking about feces. I don't know what you're talking about. It could be everything. You'd want to get her checked out by your pediatrician. Uh, often, um, soiling is viewed as a psychological, emotional issue when, in fact, it is 
physiological and that there are things we want to know that we don't know about your daughter and physiology, many, many kids who are soiling are constipated. And, sorry if this is too technical, feces are seeping around the blockage, and that's what we are seeing as soiling. And those kids, those kids often need uh, a specialized care that many pediatricians are qualified to help you do, and many are not. Um, and I only know about this because I worked in a specialty clinic on this, uh, not a specialty clinic, an inpatient unit that I interned on many, many years ago that specialized partially in kids who were constipated, who, who in kids who were soiling something called encopresis. And, um, boy, I learned a lot about it then. Here's the thing. A lot of people who specialize in helping kids who are soiling use plan A as their intervention, as their style of intervention. They tell the kid, this is what you must do. And um, a lot of Kids won't do what they're being told to do when it comes to that. Um, there's ways to help kids potty train using Plan B, though I don't have anything specific to refer you to that's been written about it. It's something I should probably write about, but there's a lot of things I should be writing about that I don't have time to write about, but it's on the list. But... Let's say that's not what's going on, or that's not the only thing that's going on. Let's say that um, your daughter is, as you're saying, and I don't know what exactly this means, refuses to potty train during the day. Refuses. Not exactly sure what it is that you are asking her to do, what potty training means. Are you asking her to go sit? What's she refusing to do? Sit even when she doesn't have to go. Use the potty when she does have to go. There I would need more information both from you about what it is, what the demand is. But then in the empathy step of plan B from her about what's hard about that for her. I also don't have any of the history here of how we've tried to accomplish this. If she's six, you've been at this for a very long time. Um, I'm betting you're not the only one who's frustrated about this. I'm betting she's got a bit of a history here in her interactions with potties and with the adults who are trying to get her to sit on one of those things. We need info from her, too. So, again... We are limited by what information I have, and that can be a tough, unsolved problem, no doubt about it. But you all so are welcome to call into the program anytime uh, if you want to fill us in with the details. Now, you had mentioned difficulty getting ready for school. That one lends itself very nicely to Plan B as well. Difficulty dealing with deadlines or schedules, that We'd need to learn more about and be much more specific about the deadlines or schedules she's having difficulty dealing with. 
uh, difficulty getting ready for school in the morning, difficulty getting ready for gymnastics in the afternoon, difficulty getting ready for church on Sunday morning. We'd need to know what they are, and be, each of those would be a separate unsolved problem. But that's probably as far as I can take you. With potty training, it sounds like you've already been to some folks, as you're mentioning, the psychologist, the psychiatrist, the doctor. So you may have already gone down the pipeline of things that are done for difficulties in potty training. Just remember, a lot of the things people recommend for potty training are plan A. They are being imposed on the kid. And a lot of kids for whom potty training is being imposed don't respond very well to plan A on potty training. Good news, there's a way to do it with plan B. Hope that's helpful. Shall we turn our attention to another email? I have two more in the uh, hopper for today. Let's see what we got. No calls today, but if you want to get in a last-second call, the number one more time, and it probably is last second here, 347-994-2981. Here's another. Uh, hi, Dr. Ian and all the great other great people working at Lives in the Balance. Thank you for all the work that you do providing an illuminated path for children with challenging behaviors. Thank you very much for saying that. I have a query about the child whose teacher is saying that they see no issues with their behavior at all and that they do not see that they have any specific needs, whereas at home there have been continuing issues with explosive behavior for a few years. I've read what you write in the Explosive Child about this being a familiar problem, but I'd love a few tips about how to deal with a teacher who is adamant that there are no issues and therefore would not consider that my son, seven years, may need some additional supports during the day. Ah. In particular, I'd love to hear of ways that a teacher can assist those children who are finding the day difficult, but don't show that during the school day. Uh, great question. Um, you know what might be most helpful? I was going to say you might want to give them a copy of Lost at School to read, but I don't know if that's necessary. I mean, the, here's the here's the overarching answer to the question. There are many behaviorally challenging kids, and in fact, this is the typical profile, who are challenging at home and not at school. But that does not mean that the behavioral challenges that are being seen at home are not influenced by the demands at school. They could well be. Um, a lot of kids keep themselves very tightly wrapped during the school day, primarily because they don't want to embarrass themselves in front of their classmates. So yes, that's right, they are devoting lots of energy to keeping themselves from being embarrassed during the school day. That doesn't mean they don't have unsolved problems. It often does mean they can't pull that off 24 hours a day. So they get home and lose it at home, decompensate over something that happened at school. Very common. But it doesn't mean that the kid is has skills at home, at school, that they don't have at home. It just means that one skill they do have is keeping themselves very tightly wrapped outside of the home. And that's a skill many of us have. As I always say, most of us look better outside the home than we do in it. Some behaviorally challenging kids have that skill too. 
But because of other lagging skills, there are things at school that are giving them a great deal of difficulty, but the folks at school don't see it. Folks at home see it. All right. But here's what I would say. It it is possible that uh, your child is um, having some difficulties at school that could use supports, but I wouldn't lead with the supports issue. No, not until I knew if there were unsolved problems at school and what those unsolved problems are. Sometimes, and you, you may not have done this, but sometimes if we lead with the word supports or throw that in there, before we really know what the unsolved problems are at school, um, it's jumping the gun, and people get a little nervous about that word if the unsolved problems at school haven't even been identified yet. So I, I leave that word out for now. That's kind of like jumping to the solution before we know what the problem is. Let's figure out if there are unsolved problems at school. And the best source of information on that at the moment, given that you have a teacher who is saying that there are no issues with behavior at all, ah, we don't want to be talking about behavior. We want to be talking about unsolved problems. It's entirely possible that they're not seeing the behavior because she's keeping herself very tightly wrapped. We don't want to know what the behaviors are. We want to know if there's anything she's struggling with during the school day. Not, well, this would be incidental, but if we ask if she's exhibiting, and you may not have done this, but if, if the topic of conversation is, is she exhibiting challenging behavior at home, the answer could, at school, the answer could well be, no, we don't see that. But if the question is instead, are there any things that she is struggling with at school, with the assumption being that there are things that she's struggling with, we'll find out, but we're not seeing behaviors in response to the things she's struggling with, which seems to be the case, we're going to miss that stuff if what we're focused on is behavior. She's not exhibiting the behaviors, but that doesn't mean she doesn't have unsolved problems at school. Of course, there's another wonderful source of information, your child. Why am I calling her a she? Is there anything in your email that would cause me to say that she is a she? No. Ah, it's a he, in fact. Sorry for saying she. Your son is a he. He might be a very good source of information as well. We're not asking about behavior. We're asking if there are any unsolved problems, and we're not putting it like that either. Is there anything he's getting in trouble for at school? Is there anything that's hard for him at school? Is there anything he needs help with that he's not getting help with? Is there anything his teachers are bugging him about? Is there anything that people are getting on his case about at school? He'll tell you. You've got excellent odds on him telling you. So between those two sources of information, the goal is to move off of behavior and on to unsolved problems. You don't always see behavior in response to unsolved problems. That doesn't mean the problems aren't there. I'm rushing here a little bit. We've got time for one more question, and that's the last one of the day. Still late August. We haven't moved past late August yet, but we're trying. Dr. Green, I'm new to this plan A, B, and C concept. I thoroughly believe in this concept, but 
wondering why you seem to focus on challenging kids. Aren't these concepts applicable to well-behaved kids as well? Are the skills that we'd want to teach a challenging kid, aren't they also skills that should be taught to well-behaved kids? Just because your kid doesn't tell you off when you ask them to do something doesn't mean they're not thinking it but choose to comply because of the, well, you're putting plan A demands in your email, I would say the consequences, but that's fine. I understand that it is the challenging behavior that causes people to seek help, but I would argue that well-behaved kids would be better adults if raised with a say in their own upbringing, and there's no argument there, I'm with you. Yeah. This is for every kid. It started with behaviorally challenging kids because that's what who I was working with at the time that I um, developed this model. Um, but it is just as applicable to well-behaved, less challenging kids. All well-behaved, less challenging kids have unsolved problems, and many of them need help solving them even if they are not exhibiting challenging behavior in response to them. Yes, the world would be a better place if we were helping kids who are not so behaviorally challenging how to solve problems collaboratively. One of my biggest concerns about this generation coming up is that sometimes I don't see the kind of empathy that would be ideal. Not that my generation or the ones that came after mine are going to win any awards for empathy. Um, I've written about this in the real-world section of the Lives in the Balance website. Uh, empathy is among the most human of human characteristics. It's a biggie. We don't want to rely solely on laws to tell people how they ought to treat each other. We want people who can listen to each other, take each other's concerns into account, work together toward mutually satisfactory solutions. I think, I've said this before on this program, I think we are exposed to so many things in the news media, so many bad things that go on in this world. And you get video footage on all of it too. I think we've gone numb. And... uh I'm a little worried about this upcoming generation. Can't go numb. That's what makes humans human. All right, we've got a little time left. Some of our listeners have uh, sent a few comments um, related to some of the things we've been talking about today. Um, timing is crucial for these Plan B conversations, which is why the proactive piece is so important. Keep a log for a week. I think this was with regard to the second one that we talked about today. See what problems are reliably and predictably popping up. 
use the ALSIP to determine exactly what the skills and unsolved problems are and pick the two or three most important ones for now. Think about what the explosions are about. Problems hibernate. So try to think about those problems, too. If they happen once, it's pretty likely they'll happen again. So address them proactively. Also, kids say stuff. Try not to take it personally. They don't always have to care about your concern, but they do need to take it into account when you collaborate on a mutually satisfactory solution. Thank you for that. Here's one more related to the third uh, email that we covered today. Try to have the right lenses on. Kids do well if they can. This is not the child's idea of a good time. Thank you to our listeners. We're going to call it a day for today. Hope you found today's program to be helpful, useful, informative. That's why we do this every Monday at 11 a.m. The Parents Panel is on next Monday. We'll have a new Parents Panel member, and I look forward to spending time with you then. Take care.